My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is the Mission Innovation Podcast. And, and the real mission or the goal for me was how to get young people out of generational poverty before they get stuck in it. Sister Eileen McNearney, a member of the Sisters of St. Joseph of Orange, founded Taier San Jose Hope Builders in 1995. But this story really begins in 1992, when she invited three other nuns to move with her to a gang-ridden neighborhood in Santa Ana, California, where gunshots and drug sales at that time were commonplace. One hot summer evening, Sister Eileen listened helplessly as a piercing cry rang through the open windows of her home. It was the agonizing wail of a mother who had just lost her second son to gang violence. The moment marked a turning point for Sister Eileen in a resolve to develop a program that could move young people from violence to productivity. By bringing together sponsors representing local government, churches, corporations, foundations, and private individuals, Sister Eileen opened an educational and job training center in downtown Santa Ana for high-risk youth ages 18 to 28. Today, Tire San Jose Hope Builders is an enterprise with revenues around $5 million and staff of about 30. A recipient of many local and international awards, Sister Eileen and Tire San Jose identified poverty itself as the biggest barrier to advancement and acquired great expertise in creating programs that specifically address those barriers. Sister Eileen, if you would, take us back to the neighborhood at 5th and Minter in Santa Ana, California, in the summer of 1992. Four of us nuns, Sisters of St. Joseph of Orange, had moved into a gang neighborhood in Santa Ana, California, in summer of 1992. I wanted to learn more about what was happening with young people in the city, why they were killing each other, maiming each other dropping out of school. And I couldn't read enough about it in a newspaper to understand it. So my hope was that if we moved into a neighborhood and just kept our regular ministries and went about our business but lived there, we would begin to understand how people live. We would begin to understand why maybe the young people did not have hope for the future and consequently put their lives at risk. So we had lived there for about a year. Uh, We were all practicing our Spanish at the same time. And we had grown used to gunshots and sirens in the middle of the night. But this was an August night in 1993. It was very hot. So, of course, uh, my bedroom windows were open. And we heard a gunshot. And then we heard the sirens. And when sirens come really close, you know it's your neighborhood. It's within 100 yards of where you live. You can have that feeling when the sirens stop. So we all jumped up and ultimately ran out to the corner to find out what had happened. And we learned that uh, a young man, a teenager, late teens, had been shot and killed that night. And we also learned that the year before, his brother had been shot and killed in a gang fight. So uh, we went back into the house feeling very sad and very helpless and uh, went went back to bed. 
But his mother's apartment where this family had lived was very close to my bedroom. It felt to me like not more than a hundred yards from my bedroom window was his mother's apartment window. And while I was trying to go back to sleep or thinking I could, she was wailing, repeatedly just wailing and moaning and um, screaming and wailing. It wasn't the noise of her sorrow that kept me awake. It was the grief within myself about what in the heck is happening here? And can't we do anything to change this? We'd been living there about a year. We'd been in our evening prayers, certainly praying for the neighborhood and the people that we saw and were meeting. But it felt to me that it was important that we do something beyond prayer, that we may be called to take some action, try to make a difference for these kids in this neighborhood. So I did not sleep that night. And the next morning, it was a Saturday night. The next morning, I was in the Spanish choir at 7 a.m. And from there, two of us... um, jumped on a plane and flew to Lubbock in West Texas. But all the time on the plane, I just saying, I just kept planning and asking the sister I was with, help me think this through, help me think this through. We, we got to do something. That was a turning point for me. I couldn't pretend I didn't witness that. I couldn't pretend I didn't hear her wailing. Uh, It was stuck within me. And that was a good thing. I had to act on it. Just to offer a bit more context, where were you in your own life and work at this time? I had recently turned 50. And um, actually, it's when I turned 50 that I started reading the obituaries every day. Those are called the Irish Funny Papers. I don't know if you've heard that. But um, I would read the obituaries every day just saying, well, I just turned 50. How long do people live anyway? And what do they do with their lives? But on the flip side of the paper, the obituaries, were these smaller little articles about traffic accidents in the city or that a gang shooting had happened. And I'd never read that part of the paper before. So I was clearly seeing that that just getting disturbed by what's going on in Santa Ana that these kids are shooting and getting killed. So it was that was certainly stirring within me. Also, I'd had this experience in religious life of uh, having many opportunities for ministry and lots of education and training and formation. But about every five years, no matter what I was doing, I would start to get sort of restless. Like I would say, well, I've done my best. I've given the best I know how to do. And, and I don't know what more to do here, uh, but my soul is getting restless. So this was true. I was feeling a little bit stuck. And the fact that I was moving on to congregational leadership didn't really help that part of me because it, it felt like a kind of depression as well, that kind of questioning, had I been doing enough with my life. If God had asked me to give my life to him, had I actually been doing that faithfully or well or or 
radically enough. Maybe I was feeling a little bit too safe. So it was at that time that I decided that I should go to Mexico to study Spanish because I could see that all the neighborhoods around us, and this is before I moved to that gang neighborhood, the demographics in Orange County were changing and they were becoming significantly Hispanic. So I thought, well, I need to go to Mexico and study Spanish. So I did that. And I only stayed a month. I lived with these nuns in the city of Morelia in Michoacan. It was a great experience. But when I came back, my Spanish wasn't great, but it was better than it had ever been. And so I really sort of felt on the way back, flying back, I heard God say to me, don't wait until your Spanish is perfect to insert yourself in some ministry with with Hispanic people, because if you wait until it's perfect, it will never happen. So I said, all right, just, you know, at some point pay attention because I need to move ahead with this. Going to Mexico was helpful to me because when I came back, I'd lived in this convent in a really quite a, I would say an affluent neighborhood. We didn't live in an affluent lifestyle, but the neighborhood was like that. It was safe. It was calm. It was beautiful. And having spent a month in Mexico and walking the streets there a lot, I thought, oh, I can't keep living in the same place. This is not good for me to stay. At some point, I need to move. And so that was that restlessness was already within me, that I could not stay in the place, not only that particular convent, that the same place within my soul, I needed to make some moves. So that's part of what prompted my desire to move to a gay neighborhood in Santa Ana. My Spanish had gotten better. I was more interested in the immigration issue and what was happening in the Hispanic communities there. And so I just invited three nuns, hey, would you move with me? And that was that was a big change. Yeah, and I think that came about by grace. That wasn't like, oh, I think this is a good decision. I just think that I think God was inviting me to do that. When did the vision for Tyher San Jose Hope Builders as a way out of poverty and gang life for young adults begin for you? It must have been stirring within me for some time without my being aware of it. Because when I was studying Spanish in Mexico, I learned about, historically, this bishop, Vasco de Quiroga, who had been the bishop of Michoacan in really the late 16th and into the 17th century. He was a Spaniard, an attorney in Spain, became ordained a priest, was made a bishop, was appointed bishop of this very uh, important part of, of Spain's establishment in Mexico. What he witnessed there was the oppression of the indigenous people by the conquistadors. And what Spain wanted was more silver and more gold. And the way to do that was to mine it. And so actually it was not hard for the conquistadors to enslave the indigenous people and put them into the mines. So this Bishop Quiroga saw this and he was a very he, he was a very good attorney because he used those skills later to change some of the policies of uh, Spain toward Mexico but he also began to figure out a way that he could 
help those indigenous people get out from under the oppression of the Spanish government. And he did this by creating small industries around the city of Morelia. And so he figured out in his head, if every village had its own small industry, its own skill, and its own way to have productivity, then these villages could trade with each other and they could create their own economy and they would not have to be under the oppression of the Spaniards. And that's exactly what he did. So we would have one village would make all copper plates and utensils and everything. Santa Clara de Cobre, everything there was going to be dead copper. One whole village just made guitars. One whole village did uh, lacquer work. So they created, he created all these little industries around this larger city. So when I was in Mexico studying that month, I would take the bus on each weekend. I would go to a different one of these villages, and I, I'm just trying to make my Spanish better. But I would walk around, and I would notice what Quiroga had done. And I thought, wow, this guy, you know, what a vision he had. How did he know to do this? He really helped people become self-sufficient and have a certain pride and dignity about themselves. I greatly admired him. And so he was in the back of my mind. Now, I had not thought about, I hadn't lived in Santa Ana yet in that situation. I hadn't considered starting a program for young people. But his story and what he had done was in my consciousness. The other thing that when I was there in Mexico, you know, you're always learning new words. And I would see this word, T-A-L-L-E-R, all over the place. Taller. What in the heck is a taller? Well, it's pronounced taller in Spanish, and it really means a, a shop, a place where you get things fixed. You take your car to a taller to get it repaired. You take your watch to a taller to get it fixed. And so I thought, okay, so that's where you that's where you fix broken things. So that word became very. I was very conscious of that. And then, probably added to that, being a sister of St. Joseph and St. Joseph being the patron of workers, I was conscious of the issue of work, work life. If Bishop Quiroga, 300 years before, could figure this out in Mexico, couldn't we figure something out in Santa Ana? And, And the real mission or the goal for me was, how do you get young people out of generational poverty before they get stuck in it. Having, you know, gone to Mexico and just fortified myself, not wonderfully, but a bit better to be more present to the Hispanic population, at least to live there, at least to be more curious about what was going on in these neighborhoods, not to be afraid when people were speaking Spanish. When you returned from Mexico, you also taught English to day laborers in Santa Ana. Was that another experience that impacted your vision for Tyre San Jose Opelders? And that was another learning experience for me. I knew that we had a hiring hall here in Orange where probably 400 men, day laborers, would gather at 6 in the morning. 
waiting for trucks to come by just to hire them for the day, any kind of job. I learned that probably 99% of these men were not documented. Uh, so they were always working under the table and somebody always had jobs that needed to be done. Uh, roofing and painting and gardening and whatever it was. So I had the opportunity and I just did that one day a week to go at six in the morning and teach about a two-hour class in English. And it was a small little classroom, but there I could practice my Spanish, but mostly I could understand from them what kind of work they did. I could see how the work they did wore them down. I could see that they were certainly using just their bodies for labor. Um, they were all trying to save money to go back and build something in Mexico for their family. They often got stuck on this side of the border because you could earn a bit of money here, but it also cost to live here. So I learned from these day laborers who were wonderful to work with, who taught me as much as I was teaching them. But they taught me about the indignity of getting in somebody's truck and not knowing how much you were going to get paid, not really knowing actually the kind of work you were going to do that day not knowing if that same truck was going to bring you back after the day or just leave you someplace 14 miles away. So what I could experience from them was the indignity of poverty, of not having choices, of being bound to this. It's the only way I can make money. So while I'm witnessing this, I'm also living in a county, Orange County, California, that has not just a history or reputation for affluence. It is an affluent county. It has a lot of poverty. It's an affluent county. What it has is a lot of industry, a lot of employment, a lot of opportunity. So it got, it got back to the options issue. I'd say, well, you know, not just not saying, oh, these poor young kids, they drop out of school and then they're in jail and they're just stuck. Well, how can we create some options for them? So I increasingly, I got fixated on workforce training. One of the things about, you know, our, our program, Tayer San Jose Hope Builders, is walking young people out of poverty. It's a tough thing to do. It's a very tough thing to do in an affluent, high-cost-of-living county. In this county, the average cost of a house is $680,000. To rent a very modest apartment in a not a great neighborhood, $1,400 a month. So how do you get out of poverty when those are the ground rules? And, and so that helped us focus on, it's not just getting young people jobs. We need to help them get jobs with a living wage. Well, what is a living wage in Orange County? It wasn't eight bucks an hour. It wasn't 10 bucks an hour. We settled on $15 an hour. Not that that was a living wage, but it's what we aimed at as a starter wage. But that meant we had to train these young people well enough in one skill or another that they were worth somebody paying them 15 bucks an hour. And the other thing that would come with a 15 buck an hour job was health benefits. If you were working for a minimum wage, easy come, easy go. 
you leave, somebody replaces you. Nobody's very interested in your health benefits. But we were always working toward, if, if we were helping them get out of poverty, $15 an hour, sufficient skills, a path that actually had a career path to it, and that you could have health benefits. So those were sort of the goals that we set. And, uh, and, it, and it was, a, it was a, a bold vision, walking young people out of poverty. What the young people had were incredible assets that they didn't know. They were young. They were healthy. They were bright, much brighter than they knew. They, most of them spoke both English and Spanish, bilingual. So they, they had a lot going for them. They were highly undereducated and often stuck. You had insight, conviction, a bold vision. What else was most helpful for you in those early days? I think the other thing that happened then was that we began to do this work in a way that was, we wanted it to be known. And that brought the attention of a number of people to be on our board to help us. We were renovating our mother house property or our building and reconstructing inside. And so we had maybe 200 solid core pine doors that we brought from our mother house in Orange to our site in Santa Ana. And we started making, we really started making garden benches out of them, a kind of Southwestern style garden benches. If it was a restaurant, we'd carve your logo on it or whatever you wanted carved on it. And they were beautiful. And so we started this thing called the Bench Makers. And we get a picture in the paper and we get a story. Now, I, I knew that we were not going to be able to make benches forever because the time it took to kind of make the benches that we made, it wasn't going to be a long-term business. But it brought the construction industry around us. They got interested. What are these nuns doing? So they started talking to me about starting a construction training program. And I, I would just listen. I think, no way. I mean, how would we do that? You know, we, we just had this one building. I don't know how we would do that. But they, they didn't leave me alone. They kept visiting me. We'll help you start it. We will help you. And they did. At some point, they helped us finance another building. They helped us start that program. And I think it was my, my lack of experience that drew them to me. That and the fact that I really have come to understand that there are just very good people out there. They understand the issues of degradation and poverty. They sometimes feel helpless to do anything about it. So if you're doing something, they'll help you. As you were growing and support was coming in, was there a foundational moment of success for you in the beginning? I think it was probably linking with the community college system. Many of our young people had dropped out of high school, so they needed to complete their secondary education. They also lacked computer skills, any kind of computer skills. They needed to learn that. 
And we began to link with the local community college so that they would provide teachers and they would salary those teachers to teach in our building. Good, because we needed to find options for funding. And that became an important and a solid one and has grown over the years so that now our trainees are, if they're taking classes through that college, they'll finish the work they're doing with us and they'll leave that with 12 college credits that they'd never even imagined they would have ever gone to college before. So what we're always looking for was credibility for them and growth. So that that was like, all right, I didn't feel so alone that we're going to be partners. Today, how would you describe Tire San Jose Hope Builders? Well, I would say it is a highly focused mission on walking young people out of generational poverty. The model is very different than one would see anywhere. It simulates the workplace. You come at 8 o'clock every morning on time. Uh, This is what you wear. There are uniforms with each training program. You work all day long at this skill. You do it day in and day out for, first of all, every program was 16 weeks long. At that time, what we're trying to give those young people is stability, a sense of self-efficacy, and a sense of belonging. Highly relational program. We build a, a community of people where they actually want to come every day because now they've made friends there. So it's, it's very intentional. But everything we do there is very intentional. And the work training areas of focus are? We have three. One, I talked about construction. And one of the important parts of that also is that construction can't be shipped off to India. It's got to be done here. We have significant programs in medical careers, front office, back office training. We've done training in building. Those aren't things medical careers can't always be shipped off to another country. They've got to be done here. Uh, The fact that young people, and we train both young men and young women, being bilingual and being able to work in a clinic or office is an asset. So that's a, a naturally good place for our graduates to move to. Uh, Certainly, the issues of computer technology, not only just programs and being able to, to work in an office efficiently, but also understanding more deeply about computer technology and being able to work into that field. So those are the three areas that we work, that we do training in. Were you ever scared or in doubt in what you were doing? Um, I, I was, and although I was, I hung around a lot of gang members and they taught me lots, I was never afraid of them. And actually we didn't experience, even though we had competing gang members in our programs, they didn't threaten each other once they came through our doors. So I didn't experience any fear on that level. I think the fear I experienced was probably financial like, okay, I, I, I'm seeing this picture pretty clearly. And I, w- I would say it, I, I sort of phrase it as a prayer because I think it was my own moaning to God every day. I'd say, okay, God, you, you got me here in the midst of this city. 
and I've got everybody all riled up about this issue and I've done my best. And I've got this big dream about how we can make this happen and how we can keep these young people out of trouble, jail, give them a, a abundance of life that you promised. But man, am I going to be able to continue this? Are we going to get the funding to help this grow? What if we just get it to a certain point and then it crashes and, and it's it's you know, I built a house on sand. I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't wise enough. I wasn't uh, humble enough. I wasn't thoughtful enough. And it, uh, and it crashes. That, that was a very hard thought for me. And I did, that did scare me. I did worry about that. One of the things that was helpful to me on that was very inspired by Jean Vanier and a book that he wrote it was called Be Not Afraid. And in that book, he has a sort of a chapter reflecting on Jesus walking between the two worlds. And he calls it basically walking between the two worlds of the rich and the poor. And he illustrates how Jesus was able to go into anybody's home. He made himself able to not just be, I can only be with this group. I can only be with the wealthy. No, I can only be with the poor. I can only be with the ill. I can only be, Jesus created within himself. I will be with everybody and anybody. I have entry. I can walk between these two worlds. So Vanier would talk about Jesus walking between the two worlds of the rich and poor, showing one to the other. Here, I'll show you, you trust me. You give me entry to your home. Let me show you what I see and know about the poor. Let me show you what I see and know about the rich. And so ultimately, I got a lot of courage from that because I could say, okay, that's what Jesus is asking me to do. The one thing that nuns have historically had is credibility. So yeah, I had a decent education. So if I talked about, if I wrote, if I painted, which I started painting these kids, I would paint their images. I would write the stories to show, let me show you people who have means what you probably wouldn't see on your own. Let me show you what I see. And out of that really came a lot of financial support and has continued to. When we're doing something that is right, that is bold and necessary, people do not fail to notice because we all drive the city streets. We all see the issues. I was very inspired by that, walking between the two worlds. That's what Orange County is. It's two worlds. They're not good and bad. They're just different. I think that my role was to walk between those two worlds. What are some of the inspiring stories you've witnessed? My greatest hope for these young people is that they don't go back to jail. They don't go back to prison. Their life doesn't get truncated in some way from early missteps. So, so the fact actually that I've known somebody who's been twice in prison and then 10 years later, I, I am so aware they've never been back to prison. They've never been incarcerated again. That 
that is very inspiring to me. And that is my, always my, my hope for them is that we can offer them enough stability and enough confidence that they begin to have hope for themselves. So that's always what I'm watching for when I'm looking at these young people graduate and move onward. I actually right now live next door to a gentleman whose son went through our program and his son had been an addict, but the son got into recovery and the son came into our program, our construction training program at 27 and a half, which was about the last time he could participate in that. And he did very well. And he moved on to a secondary construction training program. And then he moved on to union training. And so I get to see this guy from time to time. And he'll say to me, hey, Sister Eileen, I'm making 42 bucks an hour now. And I'm up to this grade. And I'm thinking, great, just great. You know, that's what I want. You know, it's like you throw them a rope and they grab it and they just keep holding on to that rope until they're on their own. Sister Eileen, you're no longer the leader of Tire San Jose. You transitioned very intentionally out of that role. How has that transition been? Well, from the passion with which you understand I began that program and to grow it, that really was my birth child that I never had, was Tire San Jose, Hope Builders. So you don't walk away from that very easily. But I've also seen good transitions and bad transitions in ministry about sisters who clung to a leadership or management too long to the point where people wished they were gone and could not pull away from it without great pain. So I knew that. Actually, when I turned about 70, I could, and I, and I had a couple health problems, I could see that my energy was not as strong as it had been. And I thought, I, I need to leave this place um, before people want me gone. I loved it so much, and I'm thinking, I want to leave this ministry or my leadership of it with dignity. I don't want to be asked by the board to depart. It would be very painful to me. So I said, well, then it's got to come from me. So I, I did tell the board that. I said, I, I'm going, I want to leave within a year. And talked about we talked about succession planning. And actually, our current CEO of that program was a young woman who was my right hand and is extremely gifted. And so we worked through that. But, but some of the transition succession planning was, you know, they'd say, well, get off the board, back up. Don't let people see your face. You need to make a pretty clean break when you make it. Oh, that was going to hurt. But I I honored those recommendations because I'd seen what happened when people didn't back up. And actually, I think that this organization has grown incredibly stronger without me. It wasn't going to grow any further off of my bones. It needed to grow beyond me, and it has because I was given the grace to back up. And the other thing that happens, I think, especially with nuns, you can get a halo effect just because having sister attached to your name. And the halo may not be deserved, but you can get it anyway. And consequently, the person that comes after you, if they're not religious sister, 
they can crash just because they're not you. And I really did not want that to happen because when that happens, your organization crashes or, or just flattens out. I wanted to create the smoothest transition possible because I wanted that ministry to not just to exist, but to grow and to thrive. So when I did leave, I, I went for maybe three months to a very short-term sabbatical program in Tucson and uh, where I had a spiritual director every week. And every week I would go meet with him and I would just start sobbing. <laughs> and then I'd have to say to him, nobody hurt me. <laughs> Nothing bad happened. I had just left my baby behind. But now it's uh, nine years later. The baby is no longer a toddler, is doing great, doing really well without me. Appreciation to Sister Eileen McNerney for joining us in conversation today. Appreciation, as always, to our listeners as well. A reminder that we have posted more educational links on our podcast website next to this episode. Thanks, everyone.